Hello, hello, hello. We are finally back <laughs> with the uh, Media Intelligence Explained podcast. I'm Vlado Petkov, one of uh, your hosts. And together with me is uh, Alicia Bors. Hi, Alicia. Hi, hello. Did you miss us? Are you asking me? I, I missed yeah. us. I, I missed yeah, it. Yeah, me too. But, you know, <laughs> I keep forgetting that we have fans and, <laughs> and it's not only yeah. us like talking to each other and have fun. Yeah, surprisingly for us, we have fans. And thank you to everyone who sent us emails and messages in LinkedIn. What's going on? Um, are we going to continue? Yes, obviously we are. And as you've seen, we will continue with maybe the hottest topic in the media intelligence world. And that's, of course, ChatGPT. We have a fantastic interview, fantastic discussion with Maya Koleva from Kumetric. Um, we already know this because we already recorded that. So we all have the interview. And right now, yeah, it's just the first part of our podcast where we talk about industry news and uh, FIBEP-related news. And saying all of that, uh, Alicia, are there any FIBEP-related news this month? So there are actually three big news and three big days yeah. that you should save in your calendar in March 17. So just in two weeks, uh, I believe from the time when we are recording, we will have copyright talks in Prague. It will be hosted by Newton Media. So save the date for everyone who's interested in copyright talks. I believe that Christoph Dix, uh, who we already interviewed yeah. about copyright in the last season, uh, will be will be there. And he's the, you know, the, the copyright director at Uninclusive. So everyone is interested in copyright talks. There's still time to, to sign up for this event. And the next event that FIPA will be hosting is actually the Tech Day that will be happening on April 21st in Rome, Italy. Uh, so that's that was the date was just established. So save that one in your calendar, and I hope we will see each other on the Tech Day because I'm definitely going. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So I'm not going to the Tech Day. That's the news. But uh, there will be someone from our company, so we will be represented because this is a very important event. I'm not going there because there is a third event from FIBEP in this chain of events. How to say? And I particularly am more interested into the sales days. So yeah, mm -hmm. I will I will go to that event and that's why I will skip tech and copyright which are extremely important and very interesting events. But I, as CEO of a company, I'm more interested in sales right now. It's a really interesting year and very challenging year. So that's why I, in a way, prioritized. But be sure to go to both of these events. Copyright is a huge topic. And you will understand why it's huge, not only because of like past problems, but even ChatGPT gives us a new challenges and uh, regarding copyright. So for sure, yeah, extremely important topic and of course the tech day which is the innovation day within the media intelligence industry huge opportunity to meet all the people who innovate in within our industry so yeah great great events and yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure we will be represented there we don't have a date for the sales day yet but we will inform you as soon as we get it yep. but there is actually a date for a big world media intelligence congress that will be happening in singapore this year yeah. this will be from 25th to 27th of october I'm really excited for that. I've never been to Singapore. <laughs> I don't want to think about the flight there, but still I'm very <laughs> excited and can't wait yeah. to see uh, all of you on the World Media Intelligence Congress in Singapore. Remember, 25th of 
October, we are starting yeah. in Singapore. Yeah, start booking your flights now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, saying all of this, uh, we uh, decided not to have industry news today because literally the main news is ChatGPT. It's everywhere and everyone is talking about ChatGPT. And we have a whole episode, like a huge interview, like more than one hour interview regarding that topic. So yeah, we are not going to discuss anything else and let's just focus on ChatGPT. Happy listening. Thank you for staying with us for the second part of our podcast. As we said uh, during the first part, this one will be about ChatGPT. Finally, we are a little bit late, uh, c- yeah, considering all the hype uh, regarding ChatGPT. And literally everyone recorded a podcast or a blog post or, <laughs> or uh, did some sort of analysis uh, regarding this new, really fascinating technology. I'm Vlado, if you're just here for the interview. And together with me is um, Alicia. Hi, Alicia. Hi, hello. Hey. And of course, we have a guest. Our distinguished guest. Our yeah. distinguished guest. Uh, this is uh, Maya Koleva from the company Cometric. Hi, Maya. Hi. Very pleased to be with you guys. Finally, okay, so Maya. Finally, yeah. Uh, Maya, go. could you please, uh, because your role in Cometric is actually head of research and insight. So yeah. could you please tell us a little more about that and about your role in Cometric? Well, I've been with uh, with Cometric for 14 years now. I started off as um, an analyst and I've been through various positions in this current position as head of research and insight, I basically develop new research methodologies. I consult clients on measurement frameworks, and I am fortunate to work very closely with our technology and data science teams. Basically, uh, we work on projects embedding machine learning and AI in uh, in general or in our processes, in our methods and testing. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a very fortunate position really, because I get to see different sides of this process, the working with clients, working with data and with content and working with the technology leaders who help us be faster, more efficient, better at all what we do. A few words why we decided to talk to Maya regarding this uh, topic. The first reason is that usually when data science is considered, people invite data scientists. And at the end, the result is like a very scientific, a little bit technical conversation, which is not the goal of our podcast. Our uh, The goal of this podcast and actually the title of the podcast is Media Intelligence Explained. So we would like to, in a way, not make a technical or very in-depth data science episode. We want to talk to like a real person who is trying to adopt this type of technologies in their real lives and in a way evaluate all of that. So this is reason number one. That's why we wanted to talk to my reason number two is that, yeah, um, everyone stays in LinkedIn. And and we noticed with Alicia that in LinkedIn, Maya published several posts about the, how to say, the analysis and the experiments she did with ChatGPT. And we said, okay, this is the perfect guest for our ChatGPT episode. Right, Alicia? Yeah, right. We would like to ask you, do you know, to explain explain to us yeah. simple people what exactly is <laughs> ChatGPT because I've, there's a lot of misunderstanding around it, what it actually is and how does it work. So if you could explain us what exactly is ChatGPT. So ChatGPT is uh, a service uh, by the company called OpenAI. It is um, uh, at the same time chatbot and a model uh, 
generative artificial intelligence model. So it is suited to answer questions. It understands you, it um, provides information, it answers, it engages in dialogue, and it's trained on a huge range of topics and can provide information on a lot of subjects. It's not necessarily designed to do specialized tasks. However, you can test it out and play and use it uh, to understand really the capability of the type of uh, technology behind it. And um, it's been really a game changer because it made experimenting with generative artificial intelligence more democratic than ever. And this is why I I was so excited by uh, my experiments with ChatGPT. I've been uh, working alongside data scientists and uh, with machine learning teams, um, and I've seen the capabilities and the prospect and the potential of uh, large language models and uh, other um, tools from the wider artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, uh, tool case. But it was the first time I was able to just sit and play and experiment and uh, do my own prompt engineering and see where I can where I can go yeah. down this rabbit hole. Yeah. We need to explain a few of the, how to say, the, the phrases which Maya uh, used. She said big language models. And within this podcast, we describe, ex- explain uh, this type of uh, phrases. We call big language models artificial intelligence models, which are built on top of huge unstructured training data sets. Imagine if you need a big language model for, let's say, Polish, we'll need all the media articles written in Polish for the last 10 years, like millions of documents. We can enhance this with some, maybe some social media data because usually people in social media use different type of language compared to traditional media. And we will send this to a machine. And at the end, the machine will study all of this and it will be able, in a way, to reproduce similar things compared to the articles and the facts and the entities which it observed in that data set. So that's why we call them big language models, because they're based on really big training data, which at the end is just a lot of text. So that's why this is this is a big language model. I will, in a way, reflect what Maya said about before ChatGPT, how did we use AI? Usually, actually, it's very hard. It used to be very hard to have this type of almost like general artificial intelligence model and at the same time available for like common businesses. Usually these type of technologies were reserved for really big corporations, which were capable to train them and at the same time deploy these type of models. But right now, the really real huge game changer is that in a way we live in classical cyberpunk scenario where people like us, we are not from these huge corporations, but like regular people have access to enormously powerful tech. And this is what happened with ChatGPT. Like uh, right now we have this. And the other game changer is that all of this is in one big package. We used to have like a very, in a way, narrow artificial intelligence. like we have a, we used to have, and we still have separate model for name entry recognition, separate model for document classification, separate model for this, separate model for, for that. Right now we have everything in one huge package. And that's really interesting. So... This is like a brief explanation of what's going on. Maya, when you played and started to survey ChatGPT, how did you do it? Initially, I started experimenting with different use cases. So there are countless of ways you can engage and get value out of a 
tools such as ChatGPT. The first thing I did was I tested it as a replacement to uh, a search engine. So I asked questions and saw what kind of information it will provide. Then I started um, making those questions more and more complex. Mm. And this is when I, I ran into some of the potential issues, which probably we should talk more about a little later, sure. further down the line. So then I started really testing out scenarios that are real world business scenarios in, in my practice, um, type of questions that we would uh, need to answer, type of tasks that we would have in our client projects. I asked uh, ChatGPT to summarize content for me. I asked it to translate content for me. I asked it to uh, extract information in bullet form. I asked it to write summarization from a specific point of view. I asked it to evaluate sentiment. I asked it to uh, classify content in topics, to extract uh, pros, to extract cons of a certain concept, all types of questions that we would normally uh, have to answer as analysts and have to collect structured information in order to either do our measurement and evaluation projects or would need to do these kind of tasks to produce a monitoring digest. So maybe let's go to the beginning. So you said you started with simple questions and then you went like to more elaborate one. Could you like give us examples of these questions and what was the answers from the chat GPT? So that's a, um, a fun one. So initially I started off with questions I uh, would hear from my children. I have two kids, nine and seven years old, and they are machines for questions, especially like either super specific questions or extremely ridiculous questions. So I, I've asked ChatGPT things like, um, uh, how old was the oldest person ever living? Uh, and I also asked it questions like, don't laugh, like, how does Iron Man go to the toilet in full armor? <laughs> I actually know the answer to that one, because I... I, I I read too many comics books, <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, but that's a great well, question. Well, ChatGPT didn't know the answer, but it <gasps> elaborated really, really detailed that this armor is not designed for tasks like you know personal okay. hygiene, <laughs> and it's designed for combat, and uh, it's essentially used in short uh, and very um, tense situations where people likely would not need to go to the toilet, which was a basic answer, and my my children really really appreciated it. Yeah, so here, that's a great example because I actually know the answer to the question. So I know that the chat GPD was incorrect in this one. So how is that? So because I don't know, I think that people are not really aware of the fact that chat GPT does not have all the answers. And it also that it's not live. So it's not actively searching to, for the answers to your questions. So if it doesn't have the data already stored, it would it, it's not able to answer your question, right? Absolutely. Especially if you ask very uh, specific questions for uh, events uh, or people or like news stories that are after the cutoff date for uh, the training data set. And actually, <laughs> there was a really interesting example of how, how this tool can mislead you if you're not really paying attention to the output. Even in a very simple scenario, like uh, summarize a news article and you can provide the full text of the article and ask it to summarize it. But if, for instance, uh, the article mentions a British Prime Minister, uh, then 
statistically, the model would think that the, the, the next words should be, be the previous prime minister yeah. rather than the current prime minister. And if the analyst collating the newsletter uses this summary straight away without any critical thinking, yeah. that's a big risk uh, there. And uh, this is not even in the area of uh, hallucinations and this kind of completely thought up <laughs> answers. It's just it's just a statistical error in a way. Yeah, yeah. Again, to clarify this for our listeners, this type of models, they're pretty much based on a lot of statistics. So let's say that we ask the same question for, for that model, which we created for the Polish language. And if we ask, uh, which is the most, so, something about the, 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 the latest Polish prime minister. Alicia, do you have prime ministers, right? We do, yeah, okay. unfortunately. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <And> <laughs> let's imagine that we use for that language model a lot of uh, like historical data. So uh, there is a huge chance that like a historical prime minister from the Polish Republic will appear as an answer because just from statistical point of view, that uh, person will be mentioned a lot as a prime minister within, within that training data. So we reach that moment uh, where we need to explain that this type of generative uh, networks, they really do not understand what they're producing. They do not think like people, but uh, their facts are based on huge, how to say, approximation based on what they've seen before, which means that they are in a way uh, designed to generate uh, fake news and false facts which is something which is extremely hard to be avoided with this type of technology. And yeah, uh, we already started in a way to explain what are the potential dangers using this type of uh, technologies. But Maya, you mentioned hallucination. So right now we, we, don't, we are not talking about hallucination. We are, we are talking about pretty much fact mismatching, or, but at the end, the facts are not correct. But the problem is that the machine generates extremely convincing answer. And if we go back to the Iron Man, how to say, <laughs> question, Alicia, <laughs> what actually is the, the true answer to that? So, so there is a built-in filtration system. Okay. So you There's... can do what you need to do inside the suit. <laughs> yeah, but but see, uh, the, the answer which ChatGPT generated for Maya's uh, kids perfectly makes sense. It's not the truth, but it makes sense. And this is, again, one of the challenges for us as analysts and people who uh, work with the truth to, in a way, fact check everything which these generative models produce. Is Do you agree with all of this, Maya? Absolutely. And um, uh, to the question, of, um, hmm, how to put it mildly. Don't put it mildly. Hallucination is a, is a nice word really in this case, but it, uh, um, what uh, it, in a way it might it might dilute the, the riskier aspect. Really this, um, the misleading type of information that uh, if you're not thinking critically and double checking might come up. One of my experiments with more complex questions was um, a bit of a literature review. I, I needed to start working on a kind of a framework to measure or at least to, to test the hypothesis on what is the value of um, communicating externally to external stakeholders when an organization is undergoing an internal transformation. So I tried to phrase my prompt in the most clear way, asking ChatGPT to tell me if there are any studies or any like articles that it knows of uh, about the importance of communicating externally when you're doing internal transformation. And it generated an extremely 
reliably looking elaborate answer, giving me six links to articles uh, from the likes of Forbes, McKinsey, Harvard Business Review with headlines that were like so spot on. And I was, oh, this is Gotas. This is amazing. It's like I, I, I have something to start from. Those were hyperlinked. Neither of the hyperlinks worked. It returned me 404 um, wow. error. When I Google searched them, uh, then uh, the headlines, none of those articles existed. Really? But they, so it made none it of them. It made okay. them up. And I okay. challenged it and I asked, did you make <laughs> them up? And then it offered another set of articles, which were all again also not <laughs> existing. But the source was made sense. It would be the a likely source of this kind of content. The headlines were absolutely in the style of those sources. This is exactly the way a McKinsey report would be titled or a Forbes article or Harvard Business Review article. So, of course, if, if uh, I'm working on something to set up a proper scientific academic exercise to understand something, I would be double checking this. But imagine if you are a customer success uh, person who has to uh, go back to multiple clients. And if you use this kind of convenient, um, super intelligent uh, intern chat GPT to help you, you might end up sending to your client a list completely non-existent bullshit articles that just, they're not there. What I was wondering, because I I didn't check it out to, to be completely honest, what when you you just said okay you just made it up and what now so does it learn or will it change in answer in the future it has the capacity to learn but the version that we have access to each time you hold it it's a baby it's every new chat is you start afresh it it doesn't have any memories uh, of other chat of other threads and of other conversations you've had with it. So it doesn't learn even from the interaction with you as a user. It only understands and gets better and learns within a specific threat up to a point where it already forgets what your initial question was and you have to uh, remind it. Uh, however, remember, this is just a chat GPT service. The technology behind it is uh, um, uh, something called GPT-3, uh, which is part of uh, the suite of uh, models by OpenAI. And you can access this um, powerful model from an API uh, and you can actually do much more complex tasks and much more tailored tasks through an API. But the chat GPT is kind of, to me, even more simpler playground than the type of playgrounds most API uh, services offer. Uh, it definitely helps me understand what I need to ask from my colleagues in the data science team. Okay. Before we move into like examples, how we can use this kind of technology into a media monitoring environment, I also wanted to mention one more thing that I, no one is really talking about. And I noticed that just after uh, I tried to log in into ChatGPT, and that might be only my European perspective because we are so used to GDPR being everywhere. But the fact that you have to sign with an email and then you also have to give your phone number and it have to be a real phone number because they're going to verify that with the code. And there's no information anywhere who is the administrator of this data and what they are going to do about it. So it's like um, something to keep in mind if you are going to test this app. Yeah. That's true. And I'm very, really, with this European mindset, I'm very, um, pretty privacy conscious. I, I would be the one who would opt out of all cookies when I'm opening a website. But I am um, voluntarily gave away my information in exchange uh, to access uh, the free version. And now I'm already a proud owner of a plus license option. And uh, there is a change, finally. I mean, if I want to do some experiments in European afternoon, it's 
I don't have downtime. This is great. <laughs> is it uh, pricey? Yeah. Is it pricey? How do you obtain that uh, it's, access? It's $20 a month, which is a very fair price point uh, right now with the current uh, setup. Even if this tool ends up saving you two to three hours a month, it's already yeah. worth it. Yeah. And it may very well uh, save you much more time than that, right? Uh, depending on how you use it and what's your specific use case. So let's move to the meat, let's say. So for all our media intelligence specialists, so for our media intelligence people. So how could the media intelligence organization benefit from tech like ChatGPT? So what are like the, the main pros of using it? Let's start with the pros. First, it's, I think it's very important to highlight that it's so many organizations in our industry are already embracing and using a lot of those uh, tools in the broader machine learning and artificial intelligence and space including generative AI. Uh, specifically, the things that tools like ChatGPT can help us with, they're really countless. The one thing that kind of bothers me is that they would work in a kind of very isolated manner. So it has to be some sort of an API deployment. It can't, I mean, a chatbot was not going to really solve all of your needs. And it's just something that can be used in very specific uh, situations in individual use cases. How it helps me already, ever since I started experimenting with um, ChatGPT, the speed of my Boolean query creation has grown exponentially. Just recently, I had to run Boolean query to test volumes uh, for something like um, uh, antibiotic shortages. So I, uh, it, it would require hours of research to get the main wow. keywords and phrases used in media coverage around antibiotic uh, shortages or medicine shortages. And it would take you a lot of desk research if you don't have prior knowledge to who, on which are the main manufacturers in this space. What I did is just asked ChatGPT to list the major manufacturers of um, antibiotics, create a Boolean, and then add another condition, which is please add phrases around uh, shortages of medicines and antibiotic uh, shortages as they are used in news media coverage. And it gave me a list of uh, great synonyms and phrases that really are used in media coverage. And then I asked it to translate this uh, uh, same Boolean search logic in uh, uh, German, French, Spanish, and Polish. So, and it does this within seconds maximum. I mean, if we count the whole iteration and all of the sets of iterations, it would be probably minutes. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I would spend much, much more time in the ranges of a couple of hours to create that same Boolean search string. Then what I only need to do is fine-tune it a little bit, potentially add a manufacturer that was missing or maybe they changed their name since 2021. So just kind of very light touches. I can even ask ChatGPT uh, to change the um, uh, Boolean operators very easily. And why does it? Because OpenAI is also the parent company behind uh, something called the Codex model, which is actually trained on tons of code. So it actually can help you write code, including Booleans. This is a use case which really surprised me. I never it's amazing. About. Yeah. yeah um, when I started to evaluate possible use cases, I always thought that in a way, the so-called indexing or coding of raw data, which we as uh, media intelligence professionals need to do for the purposes of media analysis, 
And usually, based on my experience with this type of business, I, when I was responsible for this type of an operation, I'd say that almost 90% of the costs for producing a proper media intelligence report, that's the coding part. So it's not, uh, it's not uh, the re actual report writing, the insight writing, the consultancy, etc. It's the really boring, menial, reading all of the raw data and adding metadata just, just to produce a proper analysis of of them that and uh, did you do any experiments regarding this type of uh, raw data processing for the purpose of um, media analysis yes and actually in my team we've already been using complex um, models based on uh, uh, the same type of uh, deep learning techniques uh, and transformer models to help us analyze content and you're right years ago this was definitely 90% of the costs I think it's for many organizations this uh, ratio is uh, shifting with the diff various degrees. In my team, we're definitely having good, very good progress to move to much lower share of the cost and time invested in a report production to be for uh, tagging of content and classification of content. And AI tools are helping tremendously in this regard. ChatGPT specifically, I tested it with um, several things. So it's starting off with the basic, evaluate the tonality or sentiment of an article. It's important to highlight that uh, you can ask and you can prompt to evaluate overall language tonality, which is one thing, versus sentiment against a specific entity. You might need to understand what's the sentiment against, let's say, a sentiment for the European Commission or the sentiment for uh, a company that is being fined by the European Commission for uh, GDPR infringements, for instance. And it's very different. It provides you different answers. And what is amazing is that you can ask it to provide reasoning. And this is something new. Most of the models I have been exposed to would provide you an answer with a certain confidence. Mm. However, GPT models would also provide you with actual human sounding reasoning. Why would it choose to have uh, to assign that category, that sentiment or topic to something? And this sounds like a, you know, well-experienced senior analyst who has been working for years in the industry. And this is very helpful because you can build different use cases, different scenarios. You can evaluate sentiment from multiple perspectives. I, of course, that applies uh, also to other type of classification, including topic classification. What I found it really interesting is that within your prompt, you can actually provide your own specified taxonomy. You can provide definitions with your prompt and then ask the tool to use your definitions to classify content. And that's something that uh, is um, very useful for as a starting point. Mm. Um, of course, it needs to be scaled to something that is not like you copy and paste individual pieces of content because that would be a ridiculous waste of time. But it's a starting point to do proper tests and to verify um, accuracy of output. My first experiments are very promising. One of my first experiments was with a predefined, like client-specific uh, set of topics that we would call usually in, in the uh, measurement space reputation areas. So against those reputation areas, evaluate the content, which one it belongs to. Mm. And uh, the accuracy of results was very, very satisfying, I would say, not 100%. Uh, yeah, can you share with us numbers on average, something like that? That's the point. With ChatGPT, you paste uh, examples one after the other, and uh, you might have um, a good idea, uh, a rough idea that, let's say, five out of uh, six are accurate. Mm. However, to properly do this kind of test, we need to scale it through an API yeah. to record the data, to run it different iterations, which is something that my colleagues uh, uh, in the Cometric Data Science team are already on to. 
to. And we are working on this because this is precisely what we would need. We need to do proper testing so that we can come up to the type of accuracy that is um, it gives us enough confidence. I don't care how what, what confidence the model prediction gives me. I want to be confident in the data so that I can um, use it in uh, real-world uh, scenarios. And uh, it takes take some time to get to a point where you're happy with the results and you know that you can rely on them. I have this really practical question regarding that. So for sure, it is a very powerful tech. It is capable to do really high level from abstraction point of view output. Uh, it can solve very complex multi-layer problems, but at the end, the output should be supervised just to be sure that it is correct because it will look correct. So my question here is, yeah, we need to process it with a way bigger amount of data to properly evaluate that. And when we have an API, that will be a way easier to, to do. But from practical point of view, let's imagine that we need to write a report. And that report will be based on, let's say, a relatively big sample of data, like 2,000, 3,000 documents, which is it's a fine amount of data and we need to process all of that data. So traditionally we will use people. People will read these 2,000, 3,000 documents and they will manually add the metadata to each document and then the analysis will start from that point. But we will be sure that more than 97, 98% of the enrichments done by people will be, will be true. So because usually there is some mar margin for error when people are included. Uh, with ChatGPT, with that scenario, we will send all of these documents one by one to ChatGPT and ask ChatGPT to do that enrichment. And ChatGPT extremely fast will read them uh, at, uh, and return us uh, with that metadata, which we will add to the documents. But because we know that maybe there will not maybe there will be some hallucination, something we will not we won't be correct, etc. We need to manually process all of that data. Do you think that this will, in a way, scale? Will it be beneficial for us as researchers to utilize this type of strategy, let's say, uh, chat GPT strategy, and after that, validate everything? Will that be, a way, in a way, faster, cheaper compared to the old school method where we read everything with people? So what's your expectation if you don't know the answer? I think it really depends on the approach taken. There are different ways and approaches to validation. If uh, we're looking at a very traditional concept of media analysis, it would be very article-centric. And this means that one piece of content would be opened and then while the analyst is reading this uh, article, they would answer a set of questions. What is the sentiment? Which are the spokespeople featured? Uh, who are the third-party commentators? Which are the topics? Which are the products mentioned? Are there any competitor company mentions? All this kind of range of metrics that are part of the brief and the client need. And this would be one way. So if you need to validate in an article-centric way, then what's the point to even start with the a technology uh, layer? Uh, however, we can think of validation not at an article-centric way, but at a metric-centric way, where basically the question would be much simpler, akin to the question you would receive when you log in on a page and you need to just click on the images that have a, a car. 
in them. So something that is much quicker, it's a much more simple thought process and would require much faster breathing uh, for analysts. And it would be something that could be done at basically the same type of logic that is the um, MTurk used to collect data for machine learning, the MTurk service by Amazon. So there are different ways we can look at validation. Yeah. And of course, we can look at validation at the uh, random sample level. And uh, if you do a validation on a random sample and, you're, and you meet a certain uh, threshold of accuracy that you, uh, is acceptable, then you can assume that the rest of the data would meet that uh, same threshold. So there are different ways and different approaches that we can take. And there are different approaches that I take in my team when we are using this kind of technology. In the end of the day, there are specific client briefs that are so, so custom, so specific that they would require either the whole set of coverage or a specific subsample of that coverage to be evaluated really granularly and for just people to go through the content and read between the lines because sometimes this is part of the analytical work to really read between the lines rather than just understand the words and what they convey. Okay, so what we can hear from what you're saying is that it's a great tool to bust the productivity and to save time. And it's also, as you said, the entry level is quite low, so you don't need a lot of training to learn how to ask the chat GPT the, the right questions, how to prompt it the way that, that will give you the certain results. So that's actually great. But what I'm hearing is that we still don't trust this enough for the quality and that we will still have to supervise it in a way. And as you say, we can do it in different ways. We can only supervise the samples and or we can just supervise the certain topics. Or, or and again, as Vado said, we can do that at the same time, do the chat GPT prompt and at the same time, check what our results are from the human perspective. But I also am wondering about what about the ethical perspective of using the chat GPT and who is responsible if the output is wrong. If you are sending to a client an output that is generated by ChatGPT, you are responsible for that output and there is no other viewpoint in this regard. And that applies also if the analysts working on your team just have a bad day and they produce a shitty output. Yeah. It's again, you're responsible, you're the face and you communicate with the client. What I want to achieve with me, in my team is to use tools like ChatGPT and other uh, AI uh, and machine learning enhancements so that we can move to more time for the analysts to understand their client, understand their need and be more consultative and be able to understand the broader, the broader sector their client operates in the broader issues. This is something I, I want from um, this synergy between technology and state-of-the-art new technologies and human brains. Regarding the ethical part, like this is very important for everyone who is dealing with AI and especially for me and Alicia. That's why we will we ask a lot of questions regarding ethical AI. We recorded a really nice episode with Rania Wazir, considering ethical AI topic and the possible EU regulation regarding that. Okay, who's responsible is just one of the aspects. Something else is we as analysts, what should we be looking for within the output of the machine? Like, I believe it, like, it was like two weeks ago. Within Twitter, uh, there was this really viral conversation, which I believe me Mr. Elon Musk retweeted and it showed that conversation, which Mr. Musk uh, uh, retweeted, showed 
on output from ChatGPT regarding two prompts. The first prompt was a person asked ChatGPT to write a poem, like a glorifying poem for the previous U.S. president, Mr. Donald Trump. And ChatGPT refused to do that. And at the same time, when it was asked to write a poem for, let's say, uh, I believe it was for Mr. Biden, the current president of the United States, it wrote like a glorifying poem regarding that person. So, The question here, which was put on the table, was that these models are biased. And in that case, uh, conservative influencers, they use this this output to describe uh, presumably left-wing liberal bias of the model. At the same time, we know that there are a lot of examples of models similar to ChatGPT that just in a matter of days, they start to have really biased uh, output uh, regarding certain groups or races. So, So a lot of models became racist. And my question here is based on your experience, this is a question for both of you. So do you think that the current state of these models, are they, how to say, uh, ethical enough to be really put safely uh, in uh, work environments? Is it safe uh, to just deploy them within our organizations and expose our people to work with them from ethical point of view? Of course, any model would require proper, detailed, well-rounded evaluation before it is deployed. I'm a big proponent of uh, fine-tuning models, and this is why big, large, large language models are often called foundation models, because they are foundation and you fine-tune them according to your specific business needs or use cases. And this is what is the meaningful approach for organizations aiming to deploy AI to do, to really think critically of what they need to fine-tune for their, their specific uh, needs. When it comes to ethics, that's a much bigger philosophical debate. Is there a space for cultural rel- relativism? Uh, should we treat uh, uh, the ethical aspects of um, AI and training data set in a universalist mindset? And I don't think anyone is entitled to a definitive answer to this question, just as not, um, there is not a single entity in the world that is entitled to impose their own ethical standards upon others. I am very conscious that uh, any training data set might be biased because from from the very input, from the very training data that is fed to. But then, of course, it might be then biased by people working on the models, on the design of the models, those humans in the loop that would have been part of the architecture. And then, of course, it will be biased by the users and by the way they prompt and the type of um, information they feed the models. So these are all aspects that we need to be very well aware of. For me, one of the paths forward is for any organization to really think critically, invest in the right people to help the fine-tuning aspect and help the um, kind of um, evangelism around AI in an organization, including things like, can you propose a cheat sheet of prompts that work well for the specific use cases in your team? Can you provide additional training for users to understand better the implications to think about the ethical aspects. And I think those are all valid points that would more and more come for organizations um, embracing AI. You're talking more about um, the professional environment, but what I am worried about more uh, right now, because ChatGPT is actually open for for public now, Mm -hmm. like what if people start to ask like like, questions based on your worldview? So for example, if I ask ChatGPT, okay, should I vaccinate my children? Or if I ask it, who should I vote for? 
like what would be the answer? I believe that right now it will just tell me to ask my practitioner. Uh, yeah, I so think those are the type of questions that are very moderated in, yeah, in the but, chat GPT deployment. But uh, I get your point. And uh, this is not a po- problem of technology. This is a problem of society. If we've come to the point of uh, fearing that large numbers of us as citizens would ask a tool this kind of question, then we're in a much deeper problem than any technology would solve. And it's a problem of trust and of uh, value of social institutions and what is the nature of our public contract? How how do we operate a society? And this is, has nothing to do with technology. It has everything to do with the way we as a, a social structure work and operate and what's, what we're what we can do and what we can achieve together. I will use this exact moment to remind, again, sorry, Alicia, I'll, again, I will quote something from Mr. Musk. We cannot like go one episode without him. I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we but agreed. It's, it's the second time. It's the second time. It's the second time. So we agreed on a quota, like uh, at least maximum three times okay. the Musk mentioned per episode. That's it. That's that's the KP. So this is from today and we are recording on the 17th of February, 2023. He tweeted or in a way retweeted uh, some of like or commented to something he said five years ago when he said that AI is more dangerous than nuclear bombs and we should be extremely careful with that. So and in a way we are starting to see this. Like a lot of people are really afraid for their jobs. This technology is extremely disruptive. There are tons and tons of podcasts where people claim these extremely bold statements, how literally everything, especially in the um, knowledge economy, will be disrupted and so on. So my question for both of you, do you agree with that, that this is a technology more dangerous compared to nuclear bombs? And if it is more dangerous should we ban that they can just do the things the way we used to maya Hmm. (laughs) welcome to the media intelligence podcast these are non-scripted questions (laughs) i'm definitely don't believe banning a technology that could transform the way we work is the right approach uh finding a smart meaningful ways to regulate it. Of course, that there, this is a debate that we are set to have in all societies and in all jurisdictions. There is, of course, going to be a lot of tension. We haven't really found a way to regulate the internet, let alone uh, artificial intelligence technologies that we, I mean, a couple of months from now, we might not even be able to now to picture what's going to be the next thing. So it's a um, slow deployment is probably the right approach. And ChatGPT is an example of slow deployment because it's still not linked to the internet. And uh, this is what this is what makes it a rather safe space. Yeah, but what about um, Bing? Yeah, they are going to oh, yeah. implement the, uh, the It already AI. is. I'm on the waiting list, but uh, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't test it yet. But I read several very interesting articles of, for the Bing chat, how it wants to be human. And it engages in really weird existential conversations. But I think, yeah, there will be a lot a lot written about this in the next days and weeks, and uh, we'll be following closely, of course. You can't compare this kind of technology to a nuclear bomb. The bomb is designed to kill. However, any comparisons to other revolutions that we've had in the past as uh, humanity, including industrial revolution, electricity, yes, of course we can compare, because this is going to, this is something that is likely going to be as a 
probably if we look a couple of decades on, it might be something that is comparable to the introduction of uh, electricity. So it's it's not something that we should ban or think that it's like we need to have a, some sort of a weird witch hunt. It's something that just we should all be very careful how we how we regulate, if we regulate, and then where where is the line? Alicia, will you burn the thing or you will just regulate? the shit out of it. I'm really pro-regulation because... Um, because you're it's, European. It's always, it's, yeah, it's always... It's always, EU, uh, EU. War, yeah. it's always worrying when Americans drop something and you're like, <laughs> what to do now? Let's regulate it. Yeah, let's regulate it. Then. We are really innovative in regulation. Yeah, yeah. But you don't assume that it's not regulated already. It is regulated. It's very heavily self-regulated by the, the very team behind it. And uh, many other AI tools that are allegedly even more powerful powerful are not out there because they're still in the kind of the self-regulation mode within the teams and companies behind them. In the pre-chat, we mentioned uh, uh, Utron, right? So, I mean, <laughs> Utron probably was not regulated enough by Tony Stark. <laughs> uh, and that's why it all ended up like this. Yeah. A lot of Avengers references. I have to play this podcast to my children. <laughs> they will love it. I think there's one more ethical aspect that um, uh, I don't see really discussed and really covered. And it's um, copyright and license. Yeah. And this is something super critical for for us uh, in the media uh, intelligence space. It's uh, also a topic where feedback aims to be uh, a thought leader. What is the, What are the implications of um, pasting a content in ChatGPT for it to summarize it? I mean, we as organizations pay royalty, pay licensing, pay copyright. We have subscriptions and arrangements with the publishers. And now the publishers are already expressing uh, very serious concerns about uh, tools like uh, the B new Bing uh, search that basically is going to limit the need of users to click on a link and go to a publisher and access paywall content the way it's supposed to be accessed because summarization tools would be able to give the answer to it. So I think this is something that we as an industry are going to face as a conversation with publishers, with technology providers, uh, because some degree of licensing um, and um, some degree of respecting copyright would be part of our conversations around how we implement generative AI. As far as I know, as far as I checked, I tried to find information. And from what I see, OpenAI has not paid license to content, textual content yeah. that has been used for training ChatGPT. So those, this large language model has benefited from loopholes that allow it to train on copyrighted content. It's not the case with the um, image-based uh, generative AI. Some of those uh, tools out there that are now making headlines, they have had partnerships with image libraries providing licensed content. And this has been, from a copyright perspective and licensing perspective, well addressed. However, with the textual content, this is something that, uh, to me, you know, right now is gray area, um, an area I would really be eager to get more insight and understanding from experts because, and from publishers because they are hugely important stakeholder. Whatever we do in terms of deployment of generative AI in processes related to media content creation, if a tool like this ends up uh, diminishing the opportunity of publishers to earn using a business model based on quality journalism, then we are going to be in a much bigger trouble than we yeah. are now. 
Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Yeah, I just wanted to say that on that note, on March 17th, FIBAP is organizing the yeah. Copyright Day. And I think that's one of the topics that should be Absolutely. mentioned during that. So just to let you know, there is going to be a Copyright Day in March 17th. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly a month from now. Exactly. Just a month. My personal thought uh, regarding that is that for sure this will be regulated. Like, I'm sure that uh, if you want to build in the future, if you want to build the build like, big language model, uh, by law, you will be required to use licensed data. Otherwise, a lot of content creators which create text will feel robbed because they created a lot. Uh, they put it online. They slammed uh, all rights reserved or some sort of creative commons license. But at the end, we have this machine which reads all of that and it is able to produce something similar. So the, the really big question is when the machine produces text, especially when niche topics are considered, how close the output is compared to the training data. So is it very different? Is it extremely different? Or pretty much it's something very similar, but in a way extracted from few articles. So all of this needs to be studied. It will be studied. And my expectation is that, yeah, this is this is the way EU will regulate. Like it will regulate uh, from copyright uh, perspective because I'm sure that uh, all the big uh, print and traditional online media publishers they will recognize this as a threat the same way they recognized Google and Facebook as a threat. And we received that new directive. Um, I'm constantly forgetting that directive. It used to be called Article 11, Article 13, because these were the really controversial parts of it. But it was something regarding the uni United Digital Market, uh, something like that. So yeah, I I'm sure that <laughs> there will be a lot of debate regarding uh, copyright. Moving on. Moving on, Maya, you said that these models will need to be fine-tuned. And here we reach, like, we need to say a few words how currently uh, we as a media intelligence organizations operate and what kind of people do we have here. So for sure, we have people with language and domain-specific expertise. And at the same time, usually there is like a tech slash data science arm within our organizations. And do you believe that this will change in a way that we no longer will have the need to have our own data science teams and that there will be chat GPT there and uh, just by prompting or just in a way uh, using some sort of framework provided by the big tech companies, machine learning and this type of technologies will be commoditized. So uh, at the end, we'll need less people and we're, we don't need to be a tech companies anymore. So what's your expectation? Alicia, I'm really curious to learn more about your view on that. Maya. <laughs> Maya first. I, I thought first, Alicia. Okay. Well, from my perspective, we are going to even grow our technology teams okay. because those amazing tools, they, they, again, going back to the point that most of them are foundation models. They are designed to not be the end solution, but to be something that you can start off from and then build uh, something custom and specific to uh, yourself and to your use case. I think that uh, those models help us make our work faster, more efficient, and make a better use of the time of human analysts for more human tasks. 
and technologists are key to this uh, process because they would translate the capability of the model and the results of the model into an um, interface that is suitable for the team, for the company, for the use case, and would be able to adapt it uh, to the specific uh, situations. And um, I think our setup as companies might need to adapt and change, but I don't see this being at the expense of human analysts and the traditional analysts. Okay. So I agree completely with you. So I don't think people are going to lose jobs. I think they are going to be more productive at what they're doing. So companies can acquire more clients, can do even more reports. The deadlines for the reports will be shorter. And that's something that we can all benefit from. It's not about cutting costs by getting rid of humans. It's about gaining even more money from your clients because you can give them top quality products in a shorter time with the less amount of work. So I do understand that people are scared, but I think that's like very short-sighted. You shouldn't think about cutting costs there. You should think how you can benefit from it. Well, we are at the end of our recording. It is really fascinating discussion. Just final question for Maya. Maya, we asked you a lot of questions, but <laughs> is there anything we should have asked you and we missed that? Do you think that there is something important we need to discuss right now? I think we covered it well. There's a lot yeah. we can still talk about and I'm sure that uh, the conversation will be evolving with uh, especially with uh, future roles rollouts by OpenAI, yeah. by, of course, the key competitors. Everyone's bracing for what <laughs> Google is uh, about to do. We're also, of course, closely following and waiting. Probably you two are also on, eagerly on the wait list of uh, the Bing search. I'm just now, you know, looking at uh, articles and uh, experiments <laughs> yeah. by others. And I'm just, I want to do it myself. I want to engage in an existential conversation <laughs> with, uh, with the Bing chat. <laughs> then let's agree that we'll just continue our conversation with the latest developments which happen and we will do that I know in two quarters which mm -hmm. doesn't like usually doesn't sound like really far away but from technical point of view and from like in this moment this is enormous amount of time like in two quarters a lot of things will can happen will happen so yeah um, we really would like to continue the conversation with you like chat GPT slash the new thing uh, which happened in those uh, two quarters and we will just ping you five months from now to continue the conversation. Thank you for uh, your time and everything you shared with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This was the end of the interview and we really hope that the whole conversation was very interesting and very useful for you. A few words about who worked on this episode. The hosts were Alicia Bors and Vlado Petkov. We would like to say thanks to our audio editor, Anton Vele from Govori Internet. We would like to say thanks to our marketing team, Anna Tsanova and Oresti Patricios. And I would like to say thanks to Identrix, the company which supports media intelligence explained. Thank you and we will see each other in a month. Bye-bye.